Welcome to the Community Builder Podcast. The world is our classroom, and every moment is an opportunity to understand human connection at a newer level. On this podcast, we'll explore the minds of active community builders as they strive to leave their imprint on the world. Awesome. I, 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 I love everyone that, that Paolo introduces me to. I am your host, Travis King. Let's crazy how he does that. But um, the way that we met, and this is all relevant, I promise. So we met through rowing in college. So we, we've seen each other go through all these different steps in probably the most formative years, or, or at least yet. And one of the things that I've figured out alongside Paolo, it's like, it's like the same, same kind of parallel path, but in two very different directions. We both came to love customer experience. So he loves customer experience in the form of like really honoring each individual customer. Whereas I feel like I'm a corporate hack who's always just been like, all right, let's go work at a consulting firm. Let's figure out how to scale everything, make everything big and business case and whatnot. But, you know, about a year ago, I kind of I guess a switch flipped and I was like, all right, wait, hold on. I'm working on these big brands and I'm selling all these things that are, you know, some of the stuff's really cool. Like I worked with Adidas on the first 100% recyclable sneaker, which obviously has a lot of good impact for the environment. It's cool looking sneaker. It makes people run faster. It's great. But it still kind of struck me as like, okay, I'm selling products that nobody really needs for prices that they probably shouldn't be paying. And I came to this realization that really there's this there's this need for advertising, the skill set of customer experience, strategy, brand positioning, communications, but for good. And the biggest problem that I found was looking around. There are places called and, and you know shut me up if if you're already familiar, but there are places like IDEO Impact, Frog Social Impact Design, Noble People, Purpose, Phil and Co. All these charitable organizations that do advertising for charities. But the problem is all these charities all face the same thing, which is this public bias that if you're not spending all of your money and time on exactly what your cause is, for example, recruiting or talent acquisition, it's kind of like a scam almost. People feel cheated if you spend your money towards that. And I was like, that's completely wrong. There's got to be a way to bridge purpose and PNL, right? This this whole idea of profit. So anyway, uh, about a year ago, I switched into healthcare advertising and communications design. And I've been really loving it. But but I'll tell you what, a, a lot of mentors, when I was making the switch over to healthcare and biopharmaceutical, they kept telling me two things I heard over and over. One, which is that's where creativity goes to die. Nobody works in healthcare because they're a creative individual. And I was like, ouch. And, and the second thing is nobody goes to healthcare because they have integrity, right? Like that's where integrity goes to die as well. You're selling out if you work in healthcare, you might as well go work at a bank. I was like, man, we got to really change this perception because as long as we look at healthcare, uh, at least in America as the enemy, will never have customer equity in the process of receiving the right treatment, right? So we got we to gotta change this somehow. And that's how I got led to you because I, I asked Paolo, hey, I really believe in building better customer experiences in biopharma, in medical R&D, in treatment delivery. How do I build a future where creatives don't look at healthcare as the black sheep of, of the industry and they go, oh, I, I really want to work there. I really see myself here and really innovating this industry and making it a more seamless, better experience for everybody and not just myself and not just for the stakeholders out back. And so that's really 
what I'm here to try and do is think about different ways that we can kind of build. And, and I'm working with a few organizations. Uh, one of them is called MAPE, which is basically a, a center for multicultural students to get into advertising. I'm working with Ad Color and Ad Forum, both organizations that get people of color interested in different avenues of expressing their own talent in the creative industry. And one of the things that I want to talk to you about even is, and, and whether or not this becomes like a podcast episode, it's just getting your feedback and thoughts on, you know, what are the grassroots way of approaching getting more junior talent? And when I say junior, it doesn't have to be a college student. It could just be people who have worked. I don't care if you've worked 12 years in journalism and one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I want to get into advertising. I just want to bring up healthcare advertising specifically as top of mind, as something that you might want to do and be a part of. Yeah. I mean, first of all, that's amazing that you're you know, trying to trailblaze and be at the forefront of something that's extremely timely right now. But it's something that I've thought about as well, too, right? Like, I literally said to my girlfriend the other day, I was like, if I see another COVID New York City sponsored ad for six feet of separation, I'm gonna lose it. And by the way, where'd they get that budget from? That's where my head went. So I'm totally on board with that. And I mean, like my first initial, like, just response, response to some of the stuff that you said was, you know, first that thinking about like how healthcare is positioned in the country. Currently, I just actually saw an insight study from this company, Global Web Index, and the two most trusted sources as of right now are the government and uh, healthcare organizations. Whoa. So, right. So it's interesting that this happens now, too, because more and more of these healthcare orgs are going to obviously be putting out messages, which, you know, go along to the same tune, have some spokesperson come up, tell you to stay six feet away and like keep it moving. But it's almost like what if you could bring the direct consumer CPG model of, you know, user generated content to a larger platform like oh have you seen what youtube has been doing with the stay at home campaign no i've only seen that one from facebook but i haven't seen it for you youtube you said yeah so youtube just created a campaign so like right now it pretty much overtook their channel um so if you go to youtube's like actual youtube channel there's a stay at home section and so like it literally is like stay at home and bake stay at home and watch sports, stay at home and journal, stay at home and read. So like there's all these like different like many things inside. But so like to your point about like ways that people can use that to kind of help change the way that healthcare marketing is marketing. It's like, hey, like what sorts of ways can people stay healthy? That's not like six feet of separation only or wash your hands five times. Because at this point, it's like, getting redundant to hear that. I'm like, okay, what am I not doing right now that I could be doing to help drive this, you know, conversation forward? So those are, I guess, some of my initial thoughts, but I'm also just like curious too. like, I kind of took a, I did some little 
recon, I guess, if you want to call it that. And, you know, saw that, you know, one, you've done some amazing things like when you were in college about, you know, figuring out ways to like get through your tuition and being really creative about how, you know, you solved your problems and like something as simple as realizing that you only needed to spend, I think it was like $25 a week on food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so that's like, right. But like, that's real <laughs> though, bro. Cause I'm right now, right before this, I was listening to a book um, called tribe. Oh, okay. Cool. So I'm like, you know, first, the first hour in, but the first chapter is about, uh, let me not lie. So there's an introduction and it's the first chapter is about the men and the dogs. And it's kind of talking about how Native American is kind of not that good use of that word. And it was basically talking about the difference between Native Americans and American Indians and how back when, you know, Europeans came over and took their land and, and did all these things that like at the end of the day, it was about, you know, how much could you support your family? Like, could you go out and hunt and gather? And then when you brought that back, how much could you share with everyone else that was around you in your little tribe or circle? So wrapping all this up together, it's like, I'm curious at like, what is leading you to, you know, want to build, you know, a community of, you know, creatives that actually are going to solve this like age old challenge of marketing being marketing. Right. And like, where does like healthcare design come in to that place. Yeah, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, going going back to your book, I, I I read I haven't read that, but I've read similar things, right? Like and I think one thing that really just I've always carried with me throughout my entire life was this book called Ishmael. It's about a talking gorilla. It's like a high school required reading, but it's by Daniel Quinn. And one of the things he one of the constructs he talks about is this idea of human arrogance throughout the history of evolution, right? We look at evolution as this journey that ends with man. And he says, why? Like, how are we so arrogant that we can assume that every animal has led up to a point and we are that end point, right? That, that can't be true. Like we, we literally by design cannot be it. And we do all these things that is completely destructive at scale so that we kind of ensure that we are the end all be all species. And so one of the examples he uses is, you know, the, the deer goes out and lives its life, right? Some days it finds a patch of grass and it eats. Some days it doesn't and it doesn't eat and it starts. Some live, some die, and that's it. That's the whole cycle, right? The lion comes. Some days it sees the gazelle and eats a gazelle. Some days it doesn't find any gazelle or it can't chase down a gazelle, so it doesn't eat. Some live, some die. But humans come around, they say, well, we see a gazelle and we see a lion and we're going to shoot down both and we're going to keep shooting down both and we're going to figure out a way to store them until we never have to worry about if there's going to be a day that we can live or die or eat and go hungry because we'll just have surplus. So the whole idea behind civilization is built on the premise of surplus, which is incredibly, again, arrogant, right? And, and the idea of the book isn't to say, okay, we should all go back to an agrarian, like a, a, like a, like a minimalist agrarian society or a hunter-gatherer society, but it's changing our mindset from surplus is what we should be doing to what is a more conscious way of living. And to tie that back into what we're talking about here, I think a lot of the problem of design and healthcare is based off this idea that we need more money off of drugs continuously so that we can crush the competition. When in reality, we're not competing with each other. Novartis should not be competing with Pfizer 
in the sense that I'm making more money than you are, so then I can make better drugs. The real competition is how do I lower the barrier of entry for our most vulnerable patients to still receive the treatment and healthcare that they need when they need it, despite not necessarily having the financial or capital or mobility means to receive that treatment, right? And especially in a moment of COVID-19, we can't be thinking about surplus, right? We have to be thinking about how do we pivot all of our information and all of our resources so that patients that honestly shouldn't be coming into the hospital because that's going to maximize your chances of getting COVID-19 or coronavirus, we still need to get them their treatment. We still need to deliver their drugs, but make sure that you're staying at a distance. How do we balance those two things, right? That is incredibly important. So this all comes back to community, right? Without the right community of innovative thinkers, of people who don't necessarily come from healthcare, that's really the key here, is we need people who work at Uber. We need people who work in tech and startups and consultancies, places way outside of healthcare to start thinking about these design system problems in a way that people who aren't mired by 15 years of working under FDA regulation can actually think about. In other words, here's a system that's 15, 10 to 15 years behind healthcare, right? And it's systematically done that way. How do we get fresh new thinking into an old space so that we can have a more equitable, ethical future? That's the whole idea of why we need this community, especially now more than ever. (laughs) I'm already thinking about a hundred different things. Cause like the first thing that came to my mind is like, you have to make healthcare, like being healthy has to be cool. Yeah. If like, cause like, I mean, again, like being someone that's, you know, I love working out. I love going for runs. I love knowing what my body does to certain types of food. I love knowing that I need to have a certain routine, like all these lifestyle things, like these are all amazing for me, but like at the core, I feel like to get anybody interested and like, basically if there was a way to get people making TikTok videos about Mm. healthcare, that would drive something. I don't know what it would, don't know what the results would be, but if you could make, let's say, uh, a Tootsie Challenge like Drake just came out with <laughs> and do that for healthcare. Like, could you make the Tootsie Challenge applicable to the healthcare industry? I don't know. Like, maybe we could. Like, maybe we could do it in a way to, like, for everyone who does the challenge, like, it funds an intern's, you know, month of, you know, uh, co op with your agency. Like, I have no idea. But I think. The other thing that I also learned kind of through starting this this podcast and starting just exploring different worlds was that there are intricacies in each and every community that exist only in that community. So like, for example, uh, I did an, a podcast with a friend met through the internet. Uh, his name is Richard Mahalan. And one of the uh, interesting insights he shared was about the the motivation and drive that comes from the knitting community and how you have Susie, Sally, and Melissa who might meet up every single month, do their knitting, and it's been going on for like three or six months. And, you know, Melissa might one day say like, hey, like I decided to, you know, put my knitting creations on the internet to sell them. And the other two are like, oh, no, like, that's okay. I don't really want to go down that route yet. Like, I'm not ready. 
and realizing that like, okay, well, we know you want to do this, but like, what's, what's going on here? And it's interesting when they bring in a new person into the group. Oh, um, this is Bobby. Bobby says to Sally, who might not have thought about bringing her things online. Like, Hey, Sally, like I noticed that, you know, Melissa puts her creations on the internet and has like a good business. Like you should do that too. And like those sort of pushes inside of the knitting community specifically are what helps knitters come out and like get into their creative spaces. And so I'm like, wait a minute, like how could that also be applied to other communities, right? Like for the health and design communities, like specifically, it's like, well, how could we take that same concept and say like, okay, like right now, like Eric, I'm sure you have, you know, a small little squad, if you will, of Avengers that would like help create with you if you wanted to pretty much on demand. You could probably hit them up and be like, guys, like here's a campaign idea I want to run by you. Let's see what we can come up with by the end of the day. Like you could probably get that done. So if you think about bringing in, you know, one of the person like, Hey, Travis, can you like throw, you know, somebody that you've either connected with or someone that, you know, maybe went to your college into the mix and just see what they think. Like it doesn't, they could be, you know, a softball player who happens to be an accountant, but like just the different perspective might add some value here. And so uh, Merchant also did a lot of like experiments and think tanks. And one of the premises of his consultancy that he worked with um, I think it was 21 tanks, actually, but something along those lines. He would always have a client that he was working with on a different engagement come into the room that was from a completely different industry just to give their two cents and their perspective. Wow. Right. I love that. I love that. And you keep hammering away at this word perspective. And I, I think it, it can't be overstated. It really can't because I think, you know, I firmly believe no matter what team I step into, every single person has something valuable to add, specifically the ones that you don't expect, right? And the best creatives I know appreciate the power and the value of surprise, right? Surprise is, uh, I think it's it's a common thread among many creative industries, right? It's what makes comedians really successful. If you watch um, a Chappelle show, right, on Netflix, it's always like that twist at the end of a really common story. There are very few stories he tells that aren't actually something along the lines of what you've heard before. It's the it's the last like five minutes of every joke where you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. I need to write this down, right? That kind of feeling is something that we try to replicate in everything we do. But the problem is, is on the, and I'm not trying to point fingers all the time, but there's often on the company side, the client side, there are people who live and breathe the work. And what happens is you become inundated with how things ought to be and not how things could be. Right. And so all they see is things that their competitors are doing. They see things that they've done in the past that have worked. And so they live in this world that's like, if I stay here, I know at the end of the day, I'll keep my job. I'll keep my bosses happy. In five years, I'll probably get a raise and a promotion and that'll be it. But the problem is they're not adding that outside perspective. So I think that's that's something that I try to do all the time. And it starts with getting people to, to your point, to think of health as sexy. And there's and I see you wearing a Nike hat. Listen, there are so many brands tangential to healthcare that do this so well. Nike's always says, if you have a body, you're an athlete, right? But that's something that Novartis should be saying. If you have a body, you should be healthy. And then maybe you can be an athlete. And then you can maybe do anything you want because you're healthy. You're a healthy human living in this world with more opportunities to explore literally anything you would ever want to. And it starts with getting the right treatment. Yeah, for that's whatever your is. challenge or issue is. That's, exactly. that's it. I mean... Yeah. 
I feel like there was it'll come back to me in a second. Speaking of, I guess uh no, it'll come back. But as you were saying some of the stuff about how, oh, I remember what it was as I bring my finger up, the finger pointing, and you were like, not to point fingers. And it's interesting because I got an email the other day from a marketer that I follow, and he said that he was creating a show that was going to be because the name of the show, I think, is super interesting. And it got my attention mainly because I've been thinking about doing something like this for a decent amount of time, but I never know how it will be you know, perceived by the market. Basically, not to oust the marketer, but it is what it is. His name is Billy Jean, and his podcast is going to be called Billy Jean is Marketing Offends the Internet. And I, right, you just laugh immediately because I'm like, yo, <laughs> he's about to be talking trash on yeah. Uber, on Lyft, <laughs> on Nike, anybody who's anybody. It's already he put a red target on his head. Yeah. But I, the reason I bring this up was because of what you said about uh, pointing fingers. And I honestly think I agree with pointing fingers and only because the people that are pushing the industries forward aren't necessarily going to get the momentum they need unless people know what success does not look like. Mm. That's the issue because everybody, regardless of the industry. So like even on LinkedIn, like if you see people posting negativity on LinkedIn, they're like, well, LinkedIn's a place for positivity and it's a place where like you should be good. And if you have negative comments, like sit down, but like on the contrary inside, it's like, okay, well, what if old boy was completely wrong? Yeah. And I disagree with him wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And he said some wild stuff that got shared by 10,000 people. Yes. It's the same thoughts of these like Facebook uh, conspiracy theories. It's like, well, who validated this source? And it's like, well, I don't know. It's just supposed to be positivity and empathy and gratitude. Right? <laughs> so it, I'm, I'm like kind of with the like, all right, let's point some fingers. And like one idea I had was doing a show that hasn't come out yet or been even talked about much but i wanted to create a show called so you think you can podcast oh <laughs> i love it it's the new soundcloud soundcloud rapper scene you know what i mean like everybody and their mother's got a podcast these days and it's like okay but why literally but like what's your pov and why <laughs> right yeah. and now i'm like okay wait a minute like so you think you could podcast and like the the simple way to get this up would be like okay like let's pick 10 categories that need disruption the most Mm -hmm. so we would pick b2b marketing because that shit is way broken (laughs) (laughs) we would pick healthcare marketing and then maybe we could pick like you know anxiety and depression like maybe we pick those three categories and say okay like let's go find you know 10 uh healthcare design creatives and have them come on the show and whether that's, you know, having them zoom in to their living rooms of them creating, you know, an artist painting that could be used in the next Novartis campaign, like all that stuff could be done right now. And so I think it's just about like bringing someone like me, perfect example. Like I'm already thinking like, well, how many different ways can I think about stuff? And like, I, man, I have notebooks on notebooks. Like this morning I shared a conversation from like 2018 that I drew about who were we talking about? We were talking about something about like community and skills. And then I just went back to this old notebook that I had when I was a meetup. And, but I just like went back to this notebook and then I was like, you know what? Like this might be helpful. Right. 
And then they looked at it and they were like, wait a minute, building community thought leaders. So this was like 2.0 of the podcast. So it's something that's been crossed uh, before, but, but yeah, I, I think all the way back to the point after I got on my little mini rant, um, pointing fingers and realizing like what it currently is and like letting people know like, Hey, like here's what I'm currently seeing and not being afraid to like, say like this, these are the top 10 healthcare companies and healthcare providers. And here's how they're marketing. And here's how the future of marketing looks from our point of view. And like, but see what people say. Like, I'm, I'd be curious to just learn myself. Yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent true. And, and I don't know if you listen to, um, I feel like I bring this up like to five different people a day now, but I can't obsess enough over the Ezra Klein podcast on Vox because I think he does so much work uh, in, in just fleshing out things that he fundamentally disagrees with. He literally invites pundits to come on his show to interview him instead that he fundamentally disagrees with. What's the because name of his, his podcast? Ezra Klein, E-Z-R-A-K-L-E-I-N. You just find, I listened to it on Spotify, but I, I, I assume you could find it literally anywhere. He's popular enough to have his own subreddit now, which is crazy, which isn't even run by him. Like it's run by his followers. And, and he's the editor in chief of Vox Media, which is, you know, and, and he's got like three different podcasts too. He's got a political one specifically called The Weeds. But I remember there was one episode that really stuck out and, and he was talking to uh, a, a conservative policy think tank president, basically. And, and he, it's Vox, right? So super liberal. And he, he, he proudly says it all the time. Right. And, and he brings on this person and he literally says, I think it's the most empathetic thing to do to reach across the aisle to someone who you fundamentally disagree with and have a civil conversation because the longer you actually just stay in your lane, the further away from the truth that you're actually going to produce, right? The whole idea of participatory journalism is that you actually do step in the shoes of somebody completely different and you learn however much you can and bring it back to what you do, right? And 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 this whole idea of pointing fingers, I, I actually, yeah, kind of agree. I think it's like a, I think it's a political thing that like we, we just naturally go, oh, not to point fingers, right? Even politicians are taught to do this when they give speeches and not this, right? Because it's less menacing, right? But, and, and I say, I don't want to point fingers because it's also something that I know I could theoretically get in trouble for if I come on to any kind of media broadcast and I'd be like, oh, it's all my clients fault. <laughs> I'm, try I'm trying to, you know, maintain that paycheck, especially through COVID. So it's, but, but I do recognize, you know, there's a lot to, and, and I'm sure they would say the same about us. They probably look at us and they're like, ah, oh, they're, those marketers are always trying to get us in trouble and get us to do these like weird TikTok challenges and the FDA is going to come down and sue all of us. No, I, I think there's like a happy medium. But I think to your point, like I think the most important thing, and I keep coming back to this, which is contrarians really do make a difference. And there's there are all these management consulting theories that in every team and every any kind of team environment where you're working, you need at least one designated contrarian where everything the group decides, they have to stand up and be like, but wait, what if it's this? Or might we do this? Or what if we thought about it this way? That isn't what you just said, but has equal amounts of reason in another direction. I, I think that's that's really the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I that's that's one thing that I think doesn't like. I always find myself being the contrarian because whether or not I'm being crazy 
or whether or not it's just so outlandish that everyone else in the room just can't fathom to agree with me. Like I'm used to being that person. So, I mean, it definitely, I feel is needed oh, yeah. in multiple like companies, especially now, because, you know, one thing that's happening is that, you know, they're having so much turbulence for lack of better words. And, they're trying to solve it by strapping up and saying, all right, like how can we get our run rates to be mm. a little bit more smooth, whether you're in a startup, a small business, a large corporation, like how do we smooth out? So like we stop bleeding yes. money and it's like, well, uh, let's try this. And then like, there's a whole bunch of people that are saying, let's try something, but nobody's going to actually put their stamp on it until either one of two things. Until either it's too late and they don't have a choice and they're forced to put their stamp on it yeah. because the time runs out. Or the second option is like, <laughs> because it's too late. <laughs> Nobody. And again, this is like even with the Zoom CEO coming out and saying something about his security yeah. uh, in the last like 48 hours. Like, bro, you have the whole world on your platform, including us right now. And you gonna go ahead and say something like that. <laughs> Come on, son. I'm sorry. I'm, I've only been doing this podcast thing for about a year and a half, two years now. But are yeah. you a billionaire? And if you're going to say yeah. something like that, we had some missteps. I get you yes. own it. But how do you even miss that, bro? Come on. You know the world is looking at you. you know. And it's not the first time. It's no. literally not the first time something like this. Is, I mean, look at what was it? Equifax? last year or two years ago like oh come on man that's like everybody's financial data and information you can't you can't be leaking that stuff no it's and insane. so like that's the, the, the <laughs> your point about like you know being able to be the contrarian it's like all right dude like really though nothing's gonna work he they knew what the stakes were and they still fumbled it so, like I said, whether it's going to be one from, you know, it falling down on its own or two from falling down on its own because no one's going to be able to make the decision. Like it could have been a middle level manager that was like in the team meetings and said, like, I disagree with this. And that same person would be the one getting slapped down because they disagreed with the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I think and maybe this is just me being a rebel, but like, I think <laughs> that there's a huge opportunity to start adding these contrarian perspectives, um, especially in healthcare. Cause like, I'm bro, I'm the first one to tell any of my friends, like, I don't believe in doctors. I don't believe in medicine. Like if I'm sick, I'm pushing that through me. I'm going to go run. I'm going to drink water. Wow. I'm going to really, eat yeah, literally. If you ask any, my parents, my girlfriend, wow. like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I've definitely gotten colds and like, you know, congestion and all that. But like, if I get sick, I'm like, this is my fault. So I did something Whoa. wrong to get sick. So I don't need modern medicine to fix me. So that's just how I've always wow. done it. And like, even when I was sick, when I was younger, I never would do Advil's for headaches, never did the Tylenol thing. Like it just, people were like, yo, you don't do, I'm like, no, no. But, well, you know, what's ironic about that is, is now that I've made the switch is it, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm a hundred percent with you, you know? And I tell my clients this too, you know, like I, I never really taken 
I've taken exactly two Advils in my life, in my entire life. Like I've taken two. And that's because I was in the, I was literally in the ER after a serious cycling accident. They were like, do you want pain meds? Cause you're in the burn unit. We got to scrub the gravel out of your skin. And I was like, yeah, I'll take an Advil. And they were like, that's not really what we meant, but sure. I, that's it. But like that, I'm so I'm with you on that because I, I think, you know, inherently a lot of medicine scares me. Like I didn't even grow vitamins because I'm just like, if you're eating everything you need, a supplement by definition means that you're not getting something enough, right? So just eat that thing enough until you get it, right? Like it shouldn't be that hard, right? Like, mm. like think about the thousands of years of human history where we didn't have supplements and fish oils and all this, all this chemical stuff, hormones in our food, right? Like, like we just didn't. And sure, there's an argument to be made that like, you know, King Tut did die of like terrible dental hygiene. Sure. Yeah, I get it. But like overall, I think we figured out that balance is the best medicine. But it, on the flip side, like if we were to turn this around, I would say for the people who actually do need incredible amounts of internal medicine, so people living with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, diabetes, uh, any kind of cancer, people with, as soon as you need to see an internal medicine specialist, you definitely need whatever treatments coming towards you. It's out of your control at that point. Completely out of your control. It's probably honestly, and it's probably the byproducts of a lot of this artificial stuff that we're building as a human race. But, but th that point aside, healthcare in general, the way that you live it, the way that I live it, the way that people who do take a lot of medicine live it should all feel completely invisible. Healthcare is one of those industries where I think the best design is the one you don't see exactly what Apple's been talking about the entire time. The thing that Nike's been saying, right? Nike's a little different because they slap their logo in front of your face every time they sell you a product. But imagine a world where Nike still made products. It still had its brand purpose, but didn't show you its logo at all. What they're really doing is stepping aside and saying, hey, no, 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 it's not our brand. The products and services we build allow you to live better and healthier lives so that you don't need to come back to us, so that you don't need us at all. That's really the purpose of healthcare in its final form, which is completely invisible and a holistic way of approaching your health as a human being and not as a byproduct of their marketing scheme. I got a question. What would you say if Nike created a healthcare company? Like, what would that look like to you? I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, 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 I think I know why Nike hasn't done it. Because it's just so much regulation that they're like, ah, man, we kind of skirt the edges and we probably don't need to go that far. And it's going to be so much overhead. But I honestly, the way that healthcare is headed, I mean, you look at One Medical, you look at Flatiron Health, you look at Oscar even, the two worlds are coming together, right? We have Calm and Headspace. Now, Nike has run clubs. All, wherever there's a Nike store, you could probably guess that there's a run club there. There's a fitness tracker, there's a fitness app. Nike's working with Apple, who's working with Johnson & Johnson on building all these internal medicine practices within your wearable technology, right? It's already converging to a point where I think in 20, 30 years, this conversation, we could probably look back on this and be like, Travis, you and I, we called it, Nike. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wouldn't be surprised. The thing is, how do you do your customers justice? Because I think right now, Nike still operates based off this model of the more we sell, the more loyalty we drive, it all serves our profit, our profit margins, right? It's it's not an incredibly ethical, sure, they have their climate change kind of initiatives, but it's at the end of the day, Nike, it's not, does not exist for the betterment of the collective society. It's for the betterment of its shareholders, its stakeholders, its stockholders, right? So 
that's where I would push back and be like, maybe Nike can focus in that way, creating something for the benefit of the user, not benefit of the company. Interesting. No, that's, that's an interesting point of view. And like the other thing it makes me think of is like it, there's so much siloed circles or there are so many siloed communities that I'm starting to figure out that I think the end game is consolidation. And what I mean by that is mm-hmm. it's similar to creatives and similar to artists. There are an endless and infinite amount of designs that can be made by a painter or a musician, right? Like in their heads, they never run out of stuff to do, think, say, or create. And now we're in this business world of so many companies that are still creating the same things. I literally was like speaking on this last week with a colleague about all the different sales acceleration tools there are. I'm like, you got sales loft, you got outreach, you got Yesware, you got Google Suite for business, you got (laughs) Zoom, you got Salesforce, you have Marketo, you got Pardot, you have Adobe Marketing Suite, you've got Zendesk has got a freaking CRM for God's sakes. Like, (laughs) but but like the to me, I'm like, yo. Why can't Uber and Lyft just team up and just have a union of humans that say, here's how we want to be driven. And they're like, okay, we'll give you that. And just converge them to with the taxi industries and just be done. Like, yeah. So to back to your point about having two opposing sides, like just have a conversation. Like, I think that's not happening enough. And I think that there are so many silos and even, especially in healthcare, it's like how, well, how could we bring everybody together into that conversation and help them understand that like we're not going to actually solve our problems by staying in our rooms and closing the door and mm. just like trying to think we're going to become freaking Einstein and come up with the answers <laughs> on our own, right? Like yeah. So I think there's a huge opportunity um to collaborate across industries And I think like that's one thing that if you kind of look at culture right now, um, like you'll see it like there was. uh, Did you see the Lil John and T-Pain Instagram live from uh, this weekend? No, bro. Oh, my God. No, Lil John and T-Pain, I think, broke the record. I don't know what that is, but they had two hundred and sixty thousand plus people on their joint live playing throwbacks like T-Pain would play a song and then Lil John would play a song and then. T-Pain would play a song and then Lil John would play a song. And then at the end of that, <laughs> like uh, Lil John released a new song with uh, him, Ludacris and Usher. And but this was all done like wow. live on Instagram. And I'm like, they couldn't yeah. at least use the Zoom to connect their audio and do like the audio sharing so people could actually get the positive audio experience and not the speaker. I, again, as I'm sitting here with a microphone and an audio interface, I'm like, I get it. And I'm still like learning as we are doing this. Right. But like yeah. they're music producers. So like, wouldn't they think to, but yeah. at the same time, like the thing that people wanted was a club like atmosphere. They were drinking, you know, tequila and Henny and Patron and all types of things. And it was a cultural phenomenon of 260,000 people on the same stream watching the same thing. So like the 
the collaboration in the music community was like unparalleled and like one of a kind. Yeah. So like, is there a way to bring collaboration to the health design industry, right? The healthcare design, like if you were running and leading a collaboration in that space right now, like how would you create it? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point, right? Collaborations have existed in consumerism for a long time. And, and the modern example is kind of like influencer marketing, right? And influencer marketing takes hold on so many different ways. Brands have have kind of unlocked this, this knowledge that's like when we distribute our brand messaging and allow creative individuals with a sizable audience can, to kind of interpret what we mean to people in their own way, people will re- be more receptive. Uh, put in, in more eloquent terms, it's, uh, you know, influencers will always be able to tell our, and when I say our, I mean as a brand, influencers can tell our story better than we ever can because they fundamentally are closer to their audience and that audience is the audience that we're trying to go after. These are middlemen that we need to have, right? So to your idea of collaboration, I'm not just thinking about artists that we could collaborate with. I'm thinking about other brands as platforms, right? To your point, can Nike have a future in healthcare? Uh, of course, right? We as, as a Novartis or Pfizer or Merck or AstraZeneca, we would love to partner with a Nike. It's, can we get around legally in a way that allows us to do so? That's again, that's pointing fingers at a government institution and saying, well, poo poo on you guys. If you guys don't change, then we can't either. But I don't think that's fair because I think a lot of healthcare companies are doing it in a way that, you know, borrows from, let's just say, the DTC world and puts it over here in healthcare, right? One of my favorite examples to showcase is HIMSS or Thinks, right? Two very different companies tackling really the same thing, which is just sexual education, right? HIMSS for ED, skincare, and hair care for men. Three very touchy subjects because how many men can you list off that are willing to talk about any one of those? Th- men who are balding, how many of them one. do you think? <laughs> you don't know why, of course, <laughs> societally, we are so allergic to talk. And that comes from mascul- toxic masculinity, of course, fragile masculinity. We talk about it all the time, but that's a systemic societal problem that we got to solve first before we do the other thing. But the, but the thing is, Hims came out and said, no, 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 no. That's not going to change. Society and culture isn't going to change before change makers come in and make it so that it's, it's, it's the new norm, right? So Hims comes in and they plaster uh, all over the subways, all over billboards, whatever, you know, pictures of literal cacti just like kind of drooping over their, their planters or their pots, right? It's a visual metaphor for men who can't get it up. And, and it's the first step in saying, hey, listen, it happens. It happens to literally more than half of all men in the world. If a quarter of the global population is facing this thing, it's a pretty serious disease state that we should be talking about. And they're using digital platforms, out of home platforms, physical platforms to bring tangibility to a very metaphysical state of being, right? Thinks, on the other hand, is doing the same thing, visual metaphors for women with periods, which is literally every single woman, right? Like, how do you visualize this thing that's really hard to talk about in a way that starts the conversation so you can change the system and then be at the forefront of that change as a brand? Part of that is collaborating with other brand platforms. Part of that is also, you know, for me to answer your question directly, like if I were to start this change, how would I do it myself? I often look at not so much culture because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am one of the least pop culture kind of, I'm not into pop culture, I'll be very honest. My head is stuck in like a tech crunch, fast company, startup land, like 
that's where I'm really paying attention. So that's actually where the change comes from for me is thinking about the new product services and technologies and new media platforms that we have at our disposable today and say, how can we take a hundred year old organization that moves at about a mile an hour and use this new technology, these, all these, the suite of tools, go to an overwhelmed client that recognizes that they're 15 years behind and say, hold on, you don't need to adopt AR, IoT and VR tomorrow. Let me cherry pick the things that I think have the most profound impact for you based on a better understanding of your consumer on the ground research today so that we could start to chip away at the systematic problems that you're facing. So that five, 10 years from now, you're not gonna see an immediate impact, but in the near and long-term future, you're going to start to reclaim the innovative spirit that got your company so successful in the first place. And the best example I can give people is Walmart. And I know there's a lot of controversy around Walmart as a brand. I know there's some ethical problems with how they treat their consumers. But Walmart as a company is one of the most challenged brands today, especially with Amazon, uh, you know, skyrocketing in e-commerce in general. But Walmart has been one of the safest brands that legacy brands too, because it, used, it tapped Boston Nova Robotics in Boston to build a suite of automated machines that helps alleviate human staff to do higher, more complex tasks, right? So it does all the menial labor for them. They've bought Jet.com to compete with Amazon's two-day delivery and two-hour delivery, right? And they're doing all these things, integrating, you know, CVS and, and pharmacies and, and opticians, right? They're integrating all these things and QSRs, right? They're integrating it into their retail footprint because they realize while they're weak in innovation, they're really strong in brand loyalty and physical footprints. So how can they use that kind of large footprint and that mass consumer base and say, how can we chip away at innovation a little by little until we make it so that you're not even thinking about Amazon because you're still in going in store because we know you want to see the fruit before you buy the fruit, right? These are all visual things that you buy. So I, that, that was a very long-winded way of saying it. But I think if you look at Walmart, you'll understand how to collaborate with different brands and different technologies and different digital tools to start that process of, uh, of honestly safeguarding your future. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I was just talking about something similar with a couple of friends in but one of the things I think a lot of times people forget is like to your point of chipping away, you know, inch by inch, ounce by ounce, blow by blow. And a lot of times what happens is people and this I was one of these people and I still kind of am sometimes. But like people think like, you know, being in business development, it's like, well, if I generated three hundred thousand dollars in pipeline in three weeks, people are going to be like, yo, well, every time you do business development, you'll be able to generate pipeline of $300,000 <laughs> in three weeks. And the whole total adjustable market is like $400,000. So I'm like, you want me to penetrate the whole market in four weeks? Yeah. So yeah. let me understand that. Um, but to say that, I mean, like when you're really looking at how you can solve the problems and how you can chip away. Everyone starts with this like giant, like I want to take over the world, we work-esque point of view. Yes. And I'm like, yo, I was up in there. I totally understand it. I feel you. It was a great story. Like rah rah, nah. But like <laughs> that is not the recipe. Like yeah. it, it it might get you something once you pull it out of the oven, but like it's not going to be the surefire recipe to build something that's going to be sustainable 
And like, even again, firsthand experience, like building a podcast, for example, like one thing that I would get hung up on was how long I went from recording the episode to like putting it out into the world. Mm. And so like, this is something I share with people. I'm like, yo, look, if I put out someone's episode before yours and you know, we've recorded it after it's just nothing against you. Like I'm a solo team. Like I have like one audio editor and like maybe another one that sometimes helps, but like to go through normal life, manage the podcast, become a dog father, still continue mm. to do so many other things and help in so many other areas. It's like you sacrifice so much by not looking at yourself. And then you realize you're like, oh crap, like so-and-so got mad that I didn't put out their episode that I did three months ago. I'm like, <laughs> like what you want me to do fam? Like, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. But yeah. like all that to say, if, if you don't really understand like how to build something that's scalable, it's going to break and it's going to get clogged just like a sink, just like a toilet, um, just like any process. And so like, if you can start from the, you know, beginning in such like the grassroots kind of like way of thinking and say like, okay, if I were starting a tribe today that was going to solve this problem, like how would I get them there? Like, yeah. Yeah. so like to, to some of your earlier points, I think one of the the easier ways to help them get there is just to like show them, right? Say, look, mm-hmm. like Daisley, tell your story. Like, look, go right back to that college, Eric. Like, look at here. I didn't eat off of 25 hours a week. I done been at these giant agencies. I worked with some of the largest, you know, pharmaceutical and healthcare brands in the in the world, right? Like, yeah. here's what I'm proposing right now. Like, I'm just saying, like, I'm not trying to say drink my Kool-Aid. I'm not trying to say eat my food or even take my medicine. None of that. All I'm saying is that there is opportunity for a new perspective. And here's what we believe and think. Yeah. But to clarify, I do want people to drink my Kool-Aid. Okay, well, all right, y'all. So if he has good Kool-Aid, make sure you drink it. See, when I grew up, there was like the Kool-Aid that had just the right amount of sugar, and then there was the over-sugared Kool-Aid. So it's a matter about which one you want to build. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and someday (laughs) there's going to be organic, uh, non-gluten-free Kool-Aid, whatever. Uh, It's not going to need any mix. They're just going to be able to just poof, and the water will be poured into the cup, and the Kool-Aid will just form. I love, I love it. I love it. No, but I, I think you're totally right. Right. And, and and that's literally like, that's a slide in every single lecture I've ever given every class I've taught. Uh, honestly, some client meetings, I go in and kick things off with this exercise, which is, I can't tell you how many people come into uh, a room, like a shark tank, right. And they see a bunch of VCs and they're like, all right, we're going to reinvent ice cream. And literally everyone around the table is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What the hell? Millions of people in the world, literally for a hundred for a hundred years, love ice cream. That is like a universal truth. It's so much so that if you go to a remote corner of the world and you find someone that's willing to tell you they don't like ice cream, get the hell out because you can't trust them, right? Ice cream is universally loved. It's like mm-hmm. anyway, I don't need to keep preaching on this. But so when people come in and they say, I want to reinvent ice cream, I want to reinvent Uber, or I want to make the Uber of XYZ, it's like well, what the fuck? Why? Like, it's pretty perfect as it is. Instead, it's like, okay, 
here's a here's a functional problem and it always starts with functional because and i say functional because it's like practically this is like the tiniest thing i want to do this idea of a most viable a minimum viable product mvp it's like it's nothing new i'm not reinventing the wheel here i'm just trying to make it run smoother that's it it's just what is the tiniest thing that i can do to make the wheel run smoother so it's like at a functional level what if you said well i mean maybe i want to make ice cream that you know is not part of a multi-billion dollar organization like a Haagen-Dazs. Maybe I want to make a startup ice cream because I think that, you know, I believe in small business and maybe there are a bunch of ice cream makers in the world and they're all eating pie, but I want a small slice of it because I think that, you know, maybe people can innovate in this space in a way. And I was like, okay, I get it. I want to, small, I want to support local small businesses. Let's hear what you have to say. So that's a functional level. It's just like, I want to start something new in an established category. Nothing wrong with that. So the next step is, What's the personal benefit? If I only sold, if I made ice cream and I was like, Travis, I'm just going to sell ice cream to you as one person, you're going to be my entire market share, no sales funnel, just you. What am I going to do for you? I know you care about healthcare. I know you care about your own health as a, as a person who works out, as a person who looks out for his own fitness and wellness, right? What can I do for you? What if I said at a personal level, I'll make ice cream that's less sweet, that has less sugar content. Right. And that that exists in the market. If you look around, Halo Top is a great example. It's a massively successful ice cream brand for the size of the company because it decided to say at a personal level, we know people care about health and wellness. So we'll make this product a little bit healthier for you. You get the, still get the delight of eating ice cream, but you don't have to feel as guilty. But there's a clear market cap right there. There's still going to be 90 percent of people who look at ice cream. And they're like. No, 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 no. If I'm going to have a Coke, I'm not having Diet Coke. I'm having Coca-Cola, right? If I'm having ice cream, I'm having Haagen-Dazs. Give me the 27 grams of sugar because that's why I'm here. I'm not here for health. If I was here for health, I'd eat an orange or an apple, right? Give me ice cream. So then at the communal level, which is the final form, which is like, what's the most scalable idea here, which is probably the common thread between all ice cream eaters. It's what if I made ice cream that doesn't melt? Boom. That is the biggest problem you can solve. And the head of product at box.com has always said the quality of the problem you're trying to solve is directly proportional to the quality of its outcome. Right. And it's so true. If you're, if you look at Airbnb, they always, always say, right. Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, he, he goes through this exercise every single day. He says, if you're going online, to airbnb.com as a person who's going on vacation and you envision what you want to book based on your budget, envision a five-star experience. Literally everything about five-star, you pull up to the driveway, what do you expect? Do you expect a lockbox? Do you expect big windows? Do you expect a stocked fridge, a cleaning service, bed sheets, towels, et cetera, whatever. Now do the same exercise for a six-star experience and keep working your way up to a 10-star experience. And if you can go through that journey and create a comprehensive list for each, then you functionally know what you're building as a host. You know at a personal level what those needs are. And you know at a communal level that if you do the best job you possibly can to create that 10-star experience, that that individual that stayed at your place will go back and tell everybody else in his or her community, right? That's the process. And, and, and I, I'd say the best wrapper for all of this kind of, you know, this framework and that's the strategic framework is, I can't remember who said it, but it, but it was like the, the, the discovery of the electric light didn't come from the continuous development of the candle, right? That really blew my mind because it's like, you got to think big, but you still have to take those tiny baby steps to get there. That's all. Man, I love that. It's such a such a, a value bomb because 
Like, that's such a good point. Like, even something as simple as the candle, you're like, yeah, the light definitely came from the candle, right? <laughs> like, that just makes sense. So, like, it, yeah. being like, nah, bro, that's not how it happened. Like, we can go back in history books, but, like, we're not going to go there now. But just, like, giving people, like, the biggest thing, too, that I've learned about, like, communities and touching back on this common word that's been said a hundred times already, but perspective is that, like, perspective is kind of like adding a color to a blank canvas. Like it might start out white, mm. but then I come in, I might bring black to it. You come in, you might bring blue to it. Our friend might wow. comes in and it brings yellow. And then out of all that, we might realize that some combination of us three creates fuchsia. Maybe yeah. not on the actual <laughs> color reel, right? Like yeah. maybe that's a little off, but yeah. like the output and the byproduct of our collective inputs into some process or operational mechanism then outputs some result that could not be predicted based off of what we brought to the table right like yeah. if you bring me yeah. you and put palo in a room and we came up with the next best healthcare startup that was a product that 20 eight-year-old couples who dated someone five years older than them living in New York would use twice a week to combat with their tiredness from walking their dog. Like if we yeah. built that, like <laughs> nothing about what us as a collective brought to the table actually made that like specific thing happen. But like yeah. it happened. Like yeah. whether it was a conversation, uh, an idea, a random shower, whatever, like it happened, but you couldn't predict that that's what would have came out of it. So totally. Um, totally. that's like one of the beauties of, uh, mm -hmm. giving people the space just to like share these ideas. So I don't know, man, I think you're, I think you're onto something with like wanting to bring together the future, like healthcare creatives, or just like showing people that they can, you know, build a, a creative community in a way that. Uh, will help the companies that are going to be spending so much money. Like that's the other part. I was talking to someone about this the other day and they were like, well, what industries aren't impacted from this thing? Mm -hmm. Right. And like some of them were like cybersecurity, any sort of like, log like logistics in a way, because things are still being shipped. Like Amazon mm -hmm. went up. So Amazon's actually doing better because more people yeah. are ordering online. So like some of these places that weren't as impacted and it's like, well, what sort like was the healthcare industry impacted? Are they doing better? Are they doing worse? Even though it's a oh, health epidemic, like I don't yeah. know, I'm not, I'm not in the space. Oh no, we're I I always like to say, and this is something that you know, I'm very sensitive to a lot of people in my community, but just in general, who are losing their jobs left and right. So I don't love yelling this out out loud, but but you know, honest, frankly, like I it, I'd be remiss not to mention that pharma, specifically within healthcare is pandemic and recession proof. People will always need their treatments mm. and people will always figure out a way to pay for it, right? And if you can't pay for it, then you see terrible things like people rationing out their diabetes medication, which is literally not what you're supposed to do because there are scientists who are really freaking smart, who are way smarter than I will ever be, who have figured out what the right dose of a medication is. And if you fucks with that, well, you're literally not solving your own, right? So, so that's a, that's table mm -hmm. that conversation because that's a, there's a lot to unpack there. But in general, I would like to say that healthcare is a universal need that will never end 
based on fluctuations of the market and the human condition, because there will always be people who are vulnerable to something somewhere. For that, I'm very grateful. And that's something that I've been telling a lot of creatives too. It's like, hey, listen, if you got laid off because you're working on some of the sexiest brands in the world, well, you're not feeling so high and mighty now, are you? Here's a solution, right? Bring that ass to healthcare. (laughs) Bring that ass to healthcare. (laughs) So this isn't where creativity goes to die anymore, is it? No, not not when it's feeding you, right? So it's it's one of those things where it's like, listen, it's it's a give and take relationship. It may not be the most innovative field right now, but would you rather be fighting for your job, fighting for your life every single day to do something radical, or would you rather take that smart thinking and think about how you can bring it to a field for the collective good? It's, I'm not gonna lie, it's a little slower. It's, okay, it's a lot slower, right? And, and it's not always the most liberal places to work, but, but you know, you can literally see whatever your impact is, you can see the residual effects and the legacy of those that impact is probably forever, right? Everything we do now has butterfly effects later on for, for literally everyone. It'll come back around, right? Something you develop today will maybe come back in 80 years and save your ass, right? Because if we're developing drugs for an RA, medic, med, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, that's not something that you and I are going to get right now. That's an old man's drug. But in 80 years, we're going to be damn appreciative of the fact that we started that treatment journey now. Right. And I mean, like that, that's something that's so important. And I was thinking about like some of these things, but on a deeper level, I'm like, I'm fortunate to have my health and mind and all that stuff. But it's like, you just keep going and you don't think about like, oh, like, am I really doing the best thing for my future 85 year old self? And obviously want to make sure we make the right decisions. But no, that's a good point. Like thinking about like what the effects of your actions are now on your future selves and then your future, future selves. So like not your generation, but your nieces and your nephews and your children and your cousins and all, and all the the people that um, will be growing up in the future of the world, which I, yeah, I'm, I'm already thinking like Papa's got to get some work done on uh, a few different industries before he thinks it's okay for his niece to go out there to the world. Cause I feel like now I'm like not doing enough, which it's got me thinking. And I'm like, kind of back to the premise of this original like conversation. Like I'm, I'm looking at this note you sent earlier about building out this discipline across experience, design, data analytics, creative technology, comms and engagement planning. Like that is I'm trying to figure out what that means because there's so many <laughs> silos. I'm being real though, bro. There are so many areas, right? And I'm like, how yeah. are you bringing? That's like me trying to be like, yeah, I'm gonna bring you know football, uh, basketball, uh, baseball, and track and field, and then put it into you know a box and like yeah. call this sports in a box. Like yep. you're bringing a lot of disciplines. So I'm yep. like, could you shed some light on like kind of like what you're doing, and then also yeah, just help a brother understand. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Dude, I li- honestly, I could. I feel like I could talk to you forever. I do have to jump in nine minutes. But before I go, I definitely want to answer any questions. Yeah, starting with that. And I think it's a great point, right? I, I think for me, I... To get, I mean, to, to bring it back even further, I was a violinist for 10 years. And I just, I, I had like one skill in my life, which was like, uh, literally like right there. That's, that's everything that I knew how to do for literally half my life. That was it in and out eight hours a day, 
came back from school. That was the first thing I picked up. That was the last thing I put down before I went to bed. Right. And then I, I went to college and then one day I was like, wait, hold on. Do I like doing this? And I was like, no, hell no. I hate this. I literally hate every single second of this. The only reason I did it was one, because my parents told me I had to. And two, because I happened to be good at it. And, and so it just felt good to be good at something. Right. But that's, that's no reason to do it. I think about all the people who are great at the things they do and, and they still hate it, right? I'm sure there's plenty of us. And I realized that, you know, you, but the one thing I did appreciate was the 15 seconds before I picked up the violin, where you have to convince largely a millennial audience, you and I, similar kind of age range, you have to tell them why they should care about an artist who died 100 years ago, who wrote music that's even older than that. And you're like, well, how do you do that? Well, the universal truth of getting anyone to care about something one starts with empathy, but two starts the storytelling, right? Give them a reason to believe. There's a fantastic uh, framework called ikigai, which is this Japanese term that takes four different elements, right? Like, what are you really good at? What do you love doing? What does the world need from you? And is this something that the world is willing to pay you for? In between those four things is your reason to believe. Now, if I really understand the reason to believe there, then I'm probably always going to have that brand purpose for myself. So I set out to, to kind of figure out what that looks like, right? Because I knew what I love to do. I love to tell stories and I figured that out thanks to the violin. So the next part is really, what does the world need, right? They also need storytelling, thankfully. What are they gonna pay me for? I have no idea. So that's the skill gap, right? How do I get people to pay me to tell stories? And the, the only place that would hire me, I, I literally got shot down like 17 straight times when I tried to apply for a, a work study through NYU. Nobody would hire me because they're like, you're a violinist, you can't possibly understand anything. And they probably weren't wrong. I worked at a startup because startups saw me and they were like, oh, here's this young guy probably easy to exploit. He, he probably, uh, you know, he's hungry to learn a lot of stuff and he's got a lot of time on his hands, but uh, we could definitely underpay him and we'll call it a learning experience. I was more than happy to oblige. Let me tell you, I picked up every internship, every startup experience I possibly could. And I literally struck so lucky the first three times. The first uh, startup I worked at, all I did, I shit you not, I helped them understand how to use Zendesk. Back to our original <laughs> sales. That's problem. why you laughed so much at me talking about Zendesk <laughs> earlier. Oh, wow. Zendesk was literally the only. I honestly, I owe most of my career to Zendesk. It was just that simple. Understanding how to answer customer inquiries on Zendesk is the only reason that I have a career in customer experience. It's if you can craft a really empathetic, caring email to a customer that's very disgruntled with your product or service, you pretty much have it down to a science. All those terms that you list that experience design, engagement planning, customers, data science, whatever, all of that, Zendesk. That's the only training bootcamp you need. You answer 500 emails a day and you come back to me and tell me you don't understand customer experience, right? You get it, you get it. After your 499th email, you're like, I'm a master. I've done my 10,000 hours, this is it, I'm done. Got the black belt, I'm out of the dojo. Anyway. So I do that for startups. I go through the whole circuit. They get Capital One buys one of my startups, right? Next up, I did, Vimeo buys another startup I worked on. It's just a string of these over and over where I'm starting to get better and I'm understanding that what I'm doing in Zendesk actually has residual effects over here, right? What I do when answering one customer's email has a profound effect on the community behind him or her. Right. And eventually that kind of thinking leads me into consulting, which is working on like multinational corporations that employ like a quarter of a million people, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized the pull through is 
the people who understand not so much just one discipline, so going back to violin, it's not just the person that plays violin really well that's valuable. Organizations really value the maestro, the person that plays a little bit of every instrument, but really has a clear understanding of how every single musician fits into the greater collective. And that's the kind of thinking that brought me into advertising, where I set out not so much to master brand strategy. I'm a shit brand strategist, but I really know how to value them. And I know when to pull them into a meeting. I know when to pull in data scientists, but I couldn't run a single line of code if my life depended on it. I literally, I look at coders, I see the work they do, and I'm like, I love that you're here. And I could not be more thankful that you're here because I could not do what you do. But you know what? They can't do what I do, which is look at people, what they produce, their deliverables and say, I know how much to engage you, what kind of work to give you, what's going to keep you happy doing this kind of work. All you have to do is produce it. I'll go sell it elsewhere and I'll come back to you and still give you the stuff that keeps you excited at the end of the day. That's what customer experience to me means, which is a multidisciplinary approach to just shortening the gap between brand and consumer. That's literally it. Wow. A multidisciplinary <laughs> approach to shortening the gap between brand and consumer. That's man. I think that's like a, a, a crazy note to like finish up. And I'm like, dot, 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 dot TBD because <laughs> I'm one. I want to get you to your, to your next thing. And like I even said before, I was like, I have no idea where this is going to go, but like yeah, something tells me if we chop up a lot of the content that we like made together just now, like there's, there's a yeah. lot of great inside of that. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Well, listen, I, I hope you're, I mean, it seems like you have a lot on your plate and, and stay healthy, stay sane, uh, and keep educating yourself. I, I will too. And, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll catch each other either this Thursday or early next week. I'll, I, I'll look forward to that. Thank you again for your time, uh, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Community Builder Podcast. If you received an ounce of value from this podcast, share it with your friends. Oh yeah, don't forget to leave me a five-star review. I need those. Remember, each perfectly laid brick moves you one step closer to building your community.